Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode 16 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts. Welcome back to our third season of the Modern Mobility Podcast. We are very excited to be back in the studio. And even though you can't see me, I'm saying that with air quotes because we're still in our closets. (laughs) Still hold up in the closet. (laughs) Yes. Two years later. (laughs) Yes. But we're hoping that come season four, we'll have our own podcast studio in our new office space. So I'm hoping this time next year, we're going to be recording in like a padded room. (laughs) We've upgraded from from the closet to a padded room. (laughs) Yeah, to a padded room. Uh, So anyway, so we're going to open up the season with the eight federal planning emphasis areas. Uh, For those transportation planners out there, hopefully most of you have heard about those by now, but if not, we're going to tell you all about them. And what we're going to do this season is we're going to try to tie each of those episodes back to this theme. So there's eight planning emphasis areas, and we'll go into most of those in more detail in subsequent episodes. And then we'll also sprinkle in some other episodes there that are somewhat related. So we can't promise every episode will do it, but we're going to give it a shot. Well, here we are. Season three. Yes, I can't believe it. How we've come a long way. I know. Man, it's hard to believe. So I guess it's been two years since we first started recording. Yep. Yeah. 2021. Yeah, we did three episodes in season one, 12 episodes in season two. And how many That's episodes right. are we doing in season three? Do you know? I think it's like 11 or 12, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And we've got some exciting topics coming up. I'm really looking forward to the season and the guest speakers we're going to have. So we're going to have lots of guest speakers from Modern Mobility Partners. We're hoping we're going to have some external speakers this season, still working out the details. So yeah, it looks like we've got 10 episodes um, that were scheduled to record and then hopefully a few more, like I said, with some uh, special guests, some external special guests. Yeah, some bonus episodes. Yeah. So, um, but before we start jumping into the topic in more detail today, I do have to toot our horn a little bit, which, you know, I have no problem doing here at Modern <laughs> Mobility Partners. Our podcast, our little rinky-dink podcast that we do out of our closets and we've been doing for two years now, has actually won multiple awards now at this point. Um, In 2022, we received the Distinguished Service and Journalism Award by the Georgia Planning Association. So that was pretty cool. We also, earlier in the year in 2022, uh, the American Planning Association releases their planning magazine. So it's a national publication. And unbeknownst to us, in their April issue, they had listed us as one of the planning podcasts to watch on the watch list. So that was really cool. Or listen list, I guess you should say. And then also um, the year before in 2021, after our first season, we were actually made, and, and this was a nice, pleasant surprise to us as well, by Welt Magazine. We made their 2021 Best Transportation Planning Podcast, which you've probably heard us joke around before that we didn't... No, there were that many. I think it was like the top 20 transportation planning podcasts. And I didn't even know there were 20, but we made the list nonetheless. So, but I think what's even more or just as much impressive that is exciting to me is that not only have we had over 4,000 downloads and that number increases daily, but we've actually, we have listeners in over 56 countries. We're like global people global (laughs) that's right all over the world they're listening to kelly and kirsten i know and it's not just our family members (laughs) (laughs) i don't don't think my family members were ever listening (laughs) i know 
<laughs> that's true. That's so true. I don't think we can. I don't think we can any longer say for our that one listener. True. I know we're famous. So <laughs> I know all we're right. known all over the world. Yes, enough. Of- well, I just want to oh, jump ahead. back real quick mm-hmm. to um, some of the upcoming episodes, um, and really hope that you know you all, our audience, are as excited as we are. But uh, just to hit on some of the highlights, we're going to be talking about the Safe Streets for All program. Uh, A lot of grants were just announced recently, so we have a whole episode on that. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about electric vehicles again. I know we've already done an episode, but we've got more information to share. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking more about equity in the Justice 40 program. We're going to hit on transit again. This season, we're adding active transportation and the technology that supports it, um, resilience and greenhouse gas emissions, and then also uh, some tolling and revenue. So very exciting planning lineup for transportation nerds like us. Yes, yes, very much so. (laughs) So um, before we get into the specifics of the planning emphasis areas, let's first talk about what we even mean by these. What are the planning emphasis areas? So the Federal Highway Administration, or FHWA, and the Federal Transit Administration, or FTA, they encourage metropolitan planning organizations, or MPOs. Are you seeing a theme here with all the acronyms? <laughs> and then the last, uh, actually, I lied. There's two more acronyms. And State Departments of Transportations, or DOTs, and then Public Transit Agencies and the Federal Land Management Agency, FLMA, really any public transportation organization to incorporate planning emphasis areas in their plans and work programs. So there's just a lot of stuff going on out there. And with the new legislation or the new bill, the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed not too long ago, and we talked a lot about that in the last season, um, with that has come also some new emphasis areas. So uh, Federal Highway and FTA issued the 2021 planning emphasis areas for use in the development of metropolitan and statewide planning and research work programs on December 30th, 2021. So this guidance is still in effect today. It wasn't just for 2021. It's going forward until we hear otherwise. So essentially, Federal Highway and FTA established these to provide guidance to complete well thought out comprehensive and equitable plans. And you hear us talk about equity a lot in a lot of our episodes, but they really try to reflect current trends and current obstacles in transportation and current issues facing communities to tackle these early on during the planning process. And Kelly, I know we're going to get into the details of each one of these, but does every plan have to include every emphasis area? So it's kind of, it's, it's a, Somewhat complicated answer, but so MTPs or Metropolitan Transportation Plans that are federally required by Metropolitan Planning Organizations to do every four or five years, depending upon their air quality status, they need to reflect those. Um, But some in some planning emphasis areas in more detail than others, and not every planning document has to reflect them, but at least the MTPs their transportation improvement programs, their unified planning work programs, all that, these federally required documents have to address these as best they can. Now, I should also mention that we plan, there's there's the eight planning emphasis areas, but there's also 10 planning factors that have been around a while now. And there's a lot of overlap between these Um, And the 10 planning factors are regulations, whereas the planning emphasis areas are new. And we don't know if these are going to eventually merge into one set or if they're going to stay separate. So right now we treat them separately, yet they're very closely related. So, okay, yeah. Uh, Second question Mm -hmm. from the peanut gallery over here. (laughs) Does Federal Highway and FTA have to approve these plans? And do the MPOs and other agencies have to explain why an emphasis area may not be included in order for the feds to approve the plan? Well, so, yes, Federal Highway and FTA do have to approve the MPO Metropolitan Transportation Plans, Transportation Improvement Programs, and the Unified Planning Work Programs, or UPWPs. But since the planning of 
planning emphasis areas or PEAs are new. It's it's I'm not certain yet as to whether or not the feds will not approve a plan as a result, but it will certainly go a lot smoother if they did include them and would be good planning practice regardless. So and if you can't, then you need to indicate why. Excellent. So um, kind of moving into, you know, implications of the PEAs and thinking about what does this mean for the public? Really having these emphasis areas is a direct benefit for the public. FHWA, FTA, they're trying to think about these challenges that face communities and are really directing transportational professionals to find solutions to those issues. Uh, Having these eight PEAs can really make for a complex plan, but ultimately it requires the plan to be holistic in developing recommendations and ensuring that communities are positively impacted by transportation improvements, or at least thinking about mitigation strategies for any unintended consequences. Um, I think we can see historically that without some sort of guidance on emphasis areas or planning factors, poor plans have been implemented all across the U.S. and were based on political will, favoring cars over communities, and resulting in segregated communities. And with these segregated communities came disproportionate negative impacts, especially on minority and low income. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm, you know, while I think us as planners are like, oh, here's another regulation. Here's something else we need to follow. I do really think the intention of these is meant to be positive and, and is really, you know, requiring us as professionals to to think a little bit deeper about these plans and not just check boxes. I, I would agree. And I would just add that I was actually real excited when these came out um, because what I found of these eight planning emphasis areas, almost all of them we were already doing in a lot of our work. So now it was just kind of like formalizing it and m- making sure we got credit for all the good stuff we were doing. But it is a good checklist to go back later and say, okay, did, all right, did we really do this, you know, in the true spirit of the emphasis area? And, you know, is there anything else we could have done? How can we do it better? And so it's, you know, you're just always evolving and improving those processes. So I was pretty excited to see it. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, as I was doing the research for this episode, I came across an article on the history of transportation and its impact on land use from the Urban Institute. And I really thought it was a good synopsis of the last 60 years or so. But most notably in that article, it talks about how transportation has been thought about independently from land use. And I think, you know, anybody who went to planning school has heard over and over the relationship between transportation and land use. Right. But how historically it it was not thought that way and it was independent of land use and housing. Mm -hmm. And that was really the root cause of many community issues. We'll have show notes for this episode and all of our episodes. Mm -hmm. And I will include a a website link to that article to share with all of you. That's awesome. All right. So now let's talk about what is our role as transportation planners. Well, first and foremost, We shouldn't think of these as a checkbox like we were just talking about Mm -hmm. to meet the federal requirements, but should really understand these areas before even starting plans and think about how we're going to integrate them into the planning process. And don't get me wrong, I am obsessed with checking boxes. I love checking boxes. I have it in my weekly task notes, but I'm going to leave the check boxes to my to-do list and leave them off of a checkbox for my plan. (laughs) (laughs) We also have a responsibility to do our due diligence on these PEAs. There's a ton of resources, many of which we're going to provide to you in the show notes. Aren't we awesome for doing that for all of you? We're so fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the Modern Mobility team has really taken a lot of time to research these with all of the guidance, approaches, and resources, so use them. It's yours for free. That's right. You're welcome. (laughs) And you can get AICP credit 
for your continuing maintenance, but we could talk about that later. But again, you can get AICP credit for listening to the podcast as well. And it's going to help you as well. Also yeah. for free. You're for welcome. Free. You're welcome. <laughs> um, but we also have a responsibility within these plans to not only identify the issues around these PEAs and your existing re- conditions report or section, but to find implementable solutions that are achievable. Um, I know it's hard to do this at the 30,000 foot level, especially when you're talking about a metropolitan transportation plan that's for an entire region or a statewide plan. But what you're trying to do is find recommendations that are that are at scale. And even if you have to have a recommendation like increase publicly available electric vehicle charging stations across the region, you can still provide some additional suggestions or analysis like identifying opportunity areas for those. Yeah. So like a good example of that. So, you know, I had mentioned that we were excited when the new PEAs came out. And one of the things was we were like, oh, man, this is great because for the Chattanooga 2050 Regional Transportation Plan that we're leading for the MPO there, we had actually just gotten done identifying electric vehicle charging infrastructure opportunity areas, which addresses one of the PEAs in many ways. Um, so that was pretty exciting. And, and one of the ways that we did that as well was making sure that we accounted for equity as well as part of that. So we didn't leave underserved communities behind when it came to EV charging infrastructure in the future. So we looked at, you know, the locations of multifamily dwelling units and equity emphasis areas and community resources and activity centers and so on to um, make sure that we were accounting for all potential future EV users. So that's just one example. Yeah. Okay. Enough ranting and raving about how to do your job. Um, Let's jump into the PEAs and give some more details. So we're going to tag team this because there are eight of them. And Mm -hmm. I don't think you want to listen to just one of us go on and on. (laughs) Um, But we're going to tell you what the area is and some potential planning approaches. Again, we have all these additional resources, and we're going to post the links in the show notes for you. Um, We'll have an episode for most of these, maybe not all, of the PEAs, um, in which we'll go into into more detail. So this is is the high-level overview. So, Kelly, you want to kick us off? Sure. All right. So PEA number one, tackling the climate crisis, transition to a clean energy resilient future. So what is that? You know, the purpose is to ensure that plans and investments help achieve greenhouse gas reduction goals, which by 2030 is 50 to 52 percent below the 2005 levels and net zero by 2050. So that's a that's a pretty lofty goal. So there's a lot that has to happen collectively to help to help get there. It also intends to increase resilience against weather events and disasters from climate change. And the guidance encourages planning in the areas of electric and alternative fueled vehicles, sustainable systems, and actions to adapt to the impacts of climate change. So what are some planning approaches or analyses that you might want to consider as a transportation planner? So, you know, we mentioned identifying EV charging opportunity areas. Prior to doing that, uh, it would be good to conduct an electric vehicle charging infrastructure inventory. And I believe we had an earlier episode in season two, or maybe it was even season one. I can't remember, but it went into a whole bunch of data sources on where you could get that information, um, namely with the U.S. Department of Energy, among others. Creating implementation plans for charging along alternative fuel corridors, which are um, part of a a federal designation program. Um, Identifying and inventorying critical transportation assets and establishing resilience goals. Um, You know, so whether it's certain bridges or, you know, crossings over rivers or just the interstates or what have you. um, That's what we mean by transportation assets. Um, even integrating scenario-based models to test different futures. Uh, So that's something that we like to do as well as look at alternate futures and how they might impact our investments. Um, And then one other thing, and you'll hear kind of a a theme throughout today as we talk that with these new planning emphasis areas and with the bipartisan infrastructure law, in order to tap into certain funding sources, 
you have to do other things first in many cases. And so one example of that is with the new Protect Formula funds. Uh, you've got to have a resilience improvement plan before you can tap into those funds. But that's a whole other topic. Um, and we have an episode on it later this season. Yes, we do. Uh, so we won't go into too much detail there, but that's just another thing that you can do as well and helps move the needle on those greenhouse gas reductions and improving resiliency in your region. So the next PEA, PEA number two, is equity and justice 40 in transportation planning. We've also had several episodes that have touched on this um, and we'll have more in the future. But this is a big one, and there's a lot of guidance out there for this one. First, there are two executive orders that you should read. 13985, Advancing Racial Equity and Support for Underserved Communities, which defines the terms equity and underserved communities. And then there's uh, 14008 and M21-28, Interim Implementation Guidance for the Justice 40 Initiative, which defines disadvantaged communities. But essentially, the Justice 40 program states that 40% of federal investments flow to disadvantaged communities. So that's something to consider when you're fiscally constraining your plan. And what I mean by fiscally constraining your plan is, you know, those MPO metropolitan transportation plans that we talked about earlier, they do have a fiscal constraint component to it. They have this wish list of projects. They only have so much money. So they have to figure out what of those projects can they fund with the money they have? Um, it's not just a free for all. So <laughs> there's that. So there's, you know, some ways that you can uh, encourage thinking about the strategies around this. So improved infrastructure for non-motorized travel, like biking, walking, public transportation access, so transit and increased public transportation service. So more frequently. Another way to address this is safety for all road users. And Kirsten touched on this a little bit earlier with the Safe Streets for All program. That's another thing where you've got to um, do some work to get some more extra, tap into some extra funds we'll talk about later. Uh, reducing single occupancy or driving alone uh, vehicle travel and the associated pollution that goes with it, especially in communities near highways. Reducing public transportation fares, demand response services in communities with older adults and or poor access to services, and transit-oriented development, including affordability and, and access to environmental justice populations, which are those historically underutilized uh, communities or underserved, excuse me, historically underserved communities. So... What are some more approaches to do all that? Well, you can conduct an analysis to determine underserved and disadvantaged populations. There's a lot of free off-the-shelf tools available out there, including but not limited to the USDOT Justice 40 tool. Um, and they've got lots of information on, on that online, and we'll have that in the show notes. Um, you can compare program projects with these areas and identify gaps. Uh, and you can compare existing and future trends with these layers and identify disparities in infrastructure availability and condition. Excellent. That is a big one. Yeah, it's huge. So moving on to emphasis area number three, which is complete streets. Uh, the new bipartisan infrastructure law requires states and MPOs to use at least two and a half percent of their planning funds on activities related to complete streets. So again, there's there's more of that guidance of how much your funding should be spent where. FHWA and FTA define a complete street as a street that is safe and feels safe for all users. So it's a pretty broad definition that several projects can fall within. It's just really important that you document, you know, this this falls within complete streets so that you can demonstrate that two and a, at least two and a half percent of your planning funds yeah. are going to that activity. Yep. Uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, NHTSA, 2019 data shows that 62% of motor vehicle crashes resulting in a pedestrian fatality took place on arterials, which are primarily designed for vehicular traffic. So this could be a really good place to start to identify some improvements on arterials and make them more complete street. And, so, hint, hint. Yeah. And what I would add for, for those of you listening that may not be transportation planners or engineers, 
when we say arterials, you know, to put it broadly, you know, think, you know, your four lane roads, for instance. I mean, not all arterials are four lane roads, but your four or six lane roads, they're not going to be your interstates and they're not, it's not going to be your neighborhood street, you know, so. Right. Yeah. It's probably the ones, if you live in the suburbs, like I do, mm-hmm. that all the strip malls are on and your grocery store is <laughs> off of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Like four lanes with that center turn lane mm-hmm. that you never know if people are going to yeah. use it as a driving lane or yeah. a turn lane. And people are trying to dart across because there's not a crosswalk maybe or whatever. So there's you, you start to see a theme as it kind of makes sense as to why, you know, the percentages of, of um, pedestrian fatalities is more so on arterials. Yep. Components of complete streets can and should include safe pedestrian facilities, safe transit stops, uh, safe and appropriately spaced crossings, and safe bicycle facilities. So what are some of the planning approaches we can take? Well, first, conduct a rigorous safety assessment during the planning process. Um, The Safe Streets for All program, which we'll talk more about, is requiring safety action plans before they make capital funding available. And this certainly requires robust data analysis. On the policy side, states, MPOs, and locals can adopt standards or policies to promote safety and accessibility for all users and incorporate safety into your project evaluation and prioritization and consider weighing safety higher than other evaluation categories. Um, Spoiler alert, more to come on evaluations in an upcoming episode. Yep. Okay, so let's move on to number four, public involvement. This should not be a topic that's new to any of us planners, but this is another big one. It's been on the horizon for a long time. It continues to get, you know, more and more attention, especially as we talk about equity. Um, And we discussed public involvement quite a bit during our equity episode last season, but it's still vitally important. And there are so many tools available for both in-person and virtual engagement And planners, I I do think, have really taken advantage of these. The virtual options help to cut down on some of the engagement costs, which I think has been a real challenge in the past when you have a budget for a planning study. Seems like public involvement, just it's kind of check the box. We'd rather spend the money on the analysis and and the report and all of that. So having these virtual options can help mitigate some of that. But still, agencies should really think about budgeting enough money for proper engagement, help ensure that you have diverse viewpoints in your decision-making process accompanying all communities. Yeah. So what are some strategies here? Well, update your outreach techniques to ensure all groups are reached. This requires early coordination and planning to identify groups and tailor the outreach approach based on how best to communicate across multiple groups. It is not a one-size-fits-all. You may have to do, you know, boots on the ground, going to community events for certain populations and virtual populations may be a great one for, you know, those of us who have desk jobs, for example. Mm -hmm. And take advantage of translation services to uh, provide information or surveys in multiple languages. You know, there's Google Translate out there. There's other, I think, free tools Um, I do suggest that you get it proofread by somebody who is uh, fluent in whatever language you are (laughs) translating, but that's a good start. You're not having to pay for the full translation service. Yeah. And if you are going to have virtual engagement, provide other means of information transfer, such as call-in numbers, texting options, and even maybe some in-person meeting hubs for virtual meetings, such as libraries with computers. And provide visuals for people to provide input. This could be online mapping platforms, virtual rooms, or even in, in-person boards and maps like like the traditional outreach we all know and love. Yeah. I mean, I think the bottom line now is, you know, ever since, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, it's, you know, going forward, it's going to have to be a hybrid public engagement approach, not just virtual, not just in-person. I think the theme is providing multiple options to engage the community. So Yeah, and I and I think to that point, Kelly, I know in my experience, trying to do hybrid concurrent, like doing virtual and in-person concurrent at the same meeting has become incredibly challenging. Yeah. It's really you you communicate to 
the two different groups differently. Yeah, I agree. And so I I know for my plans, I plan on trying to do provide both options, mm-hmm. but then be at different meeting times. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, we can focus our attention on the audience that's there and not try to balance it because inevitably somebody's getting left out. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so PEA number five, Strategic Highway Network or StrawNet, that's S-T-R-A-H-N-E-T, U.S. Department of Defense DOD coordination. So what the heck does that mean? So StrawNet routes are the DOD's critical roadways for national defense purposes. They've been around since the beginning of the interstate system. In fact, that's actually why the interstate is what it is. It's in the nation's best interest to ensure the StrawNet system maintains good condition. It connects 200 military installations and ports to the primary highway system. These facilities are often major employers in the region, which also result in economic development and heavy commuter and freight traffic around the entry points to these facilities. So planners should really coordinate with DOD on planning efforts and recommendations as it relates to the StrawNet system. And I can honestly say that as a, you know, I've been doing transportation planning for 25 years now, and I learned about the StrawNet system at the beginning of my career only because I started out working for a state DOT. And so I heard a lot about it back then. But there's a lot of folks out there that don't even have never in our industry that may not even know what the straw net is. And so I think this is a good one that the feds have brought to folks attention that folks may not have been really paying attention to as much as they should be. And it could be also that everything they're doing is benefiting it, but they're not pointing it out. Right. So just making sure that you're pointing out how this also benefits ports and military installations along the StrawNet routes. So what are some of the strategies? Um, Well, you can assess and monitor traffic capacity and operations along these corridors to ensure that there are no disruptions to military needs and civilian traffic. Um, You know, traffic analysis, travel man modeling and open source platforms are all available for this activity. You can include representatives from the Department of Defense or the local military and port facilities and emergency management departments as stakeholders in the planning process. And I should also mention that, you know, a lot of these PEAs kind of tie in with each other. So I do feel like there's this ties in also with resilience, right, and evacuation route planning and stuff like that. Yeah. And I like this one, you know, including Department of Defense or local military installations. I did a project down that connected to Columbus, Georgia. There's a huge army base there, Fort Benning, Mm -hmm. and they were on our stakeholder committee and they brought a perspective that was so different than the transportation perspective. And I think it really made for a, a great plan having having their input. So I would highly encourage if you if it makes sense to have Department of Defense or military uh, in your stakeholder group, include them. Yeah. And also, I think a lot of folks don't even realize that a lot of these military installations have their own transportation infrastructure department within the within the the base. And so they're doing infrastructure planning. Maybe it's on the base and just surrounding it, but it'd be good for you to know about that. Now, granted, they can't tell you everything they're doing on the base, right? For, you know, top secret covert mission stuff, right? But, right. but you know, it's, it is helpful to know what's the, you, what's the military traffic like um, at their entrances and stuff like that and the surrounding infrastructure needs. So you're right. It brings a whole nother perspective that we as civilians don't always think about. So another methodology or tactic is to develop a plan or coordination procedures, especially for um, statewide and regional level opportunities or studies um, to support military activity during national emergencies um, and practice those procedures. And then another opportunity is to look for innovative ITS or intelligent transportation systems and technology solutions to meet highway travel needs, which are typically lower costs and less impactful to the surrounding community as as far as in a negative way, right? It's usually a a positive impact and kind of some low-hanging fruit 
that's it on straw debt. Um, another PEA that I think is was somewhat overlooked before until the PEAs were released is the Federal Land Management Agency FLMA coordination. So this is another one that we as planners, it may not have always been at the top of our list, but this is about coordinating with the FLMA when you have roads and facilities connecting to federal lands. There's actually quite a bit of funding out there to support better access and transportation needs of of FLMAs, and plans should really leverage that. I feel like that was a tongue twister for me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was. Yeah. That's okay, though. (laughs) So, um, you know, tribal transportation program, federal lands transportation program, and the federal lands access program tips must be included in the state transportation improvement program or step directly or by reference. And federal highway must approve this. And I think a lot of folks really aren't don't realize that. Yeah. So I I actually didn't know that. This this one, when I was doing the research, I was like, oh, oh, I don't know anything about this. So I have not done a lot of step planning in my career. Honestly, like this is just not something that I've thought much about in my previous plans. But, you know, the more you know. I know. And, you know, like I know that some of our state DOT clients, you know, they do that are in charge of step development are a little more intimately familiar with it, but typically consultants aren't as involved in that. And, you know, they would refer to it as the FLAP program, the Federal Lands Access Program. So I remember hearing about FLAP and having to go back and look what that was, look up what that was. <laughs> so you're not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> so, Makes me feel a little better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what can planners do? Well, we can integrate FLAP, Federal Lands Access Program, into project evaluation criteria. So that's when we're evaluating how effective a project is when we're comparing it against other projects for funding. We can organize a multi-agency working group to address that um, and require collaboration. So, you know, with some areas that may... So, okay, an example... I know I'm, I bring up the Chattanooga 2050 Regional Transportation Plan a lot, but that's because we're working on it right now and leading that. But we were just talking about this the other day with the MPO and how we were glad that they had included, you know, as a resource agency, the land management agency, FLMA, as part of the planning environmental linkage efforts that they were been doing that is feeding into the regional transportation plan. And so we'll talk about that in the next PEA, the the PEL stuff, planning environmental linkage. But that's one way to do it is to include them as one of your resource agencies, either through PEL or your air quality planning um, interagency consultation. If you're in an air quality non-attainment area and have to do that, uh, that's another way to do it as well. You can invite FLMA to participate in stakeholder groups for the planning process and decision-making Uh, And you can also assess vulnerabilities and transportation infrastructure around federal lands and identify some system resilience opportunities to maintain connectivity during events. So this also ties back to one of the earlier PEAs we talked about as it related to climate change and resilience. So it all overlaps. It does. Mm -hmm. All right. So moving on to number seven, planning and environmental linkage or PEL that Kelly mentioned just a minute ago. So what is this? Well, it is an approach to create efficiency in transportation project development and accelerate project delivery. Um, It intends to kind of foster collaboration and integrate different approaches, considering environmental, community, and economic goals earlier in the planning process. And then it uses that information to inform the environmental review process. So it's really all about creating those efficiencies and uh, minimizing duplication. Uh, It helps with documenting the plan and the project early. It provides early decisions and analysis to inform the environmental review. And it also allows for more flexible approaches. PEL is a great way to foster enhanced community involvement and um, really helps to improve coordination with agencies. It's not appropriate for every project or plan, But I think, you know, if you're looking at a regional plan or a statewide plan, you should look for those opportunities where a project might benefit from the Pell program. 
So how do we do this as planners? Well, let's you can review and utilize FHWA's Pell framework as your planning basis. Yes, there will be a link to that in the show notes. Um, you can also make the project multi-agency, a partnership between like state, regional, local government to foster that unified decision making. Uh, there is an example of Pell here in Georgia that is ongoing right now. It's along the I-85 corridor that uh, goes from Atlanta into Gwinnett County, and it is a partnership between GDOT and Gwinnett County. You can Google it, I-85 Pell. There's a whole website, all kinds of information. And we're working on that project too, by the way. Yes, we are. <laughs> and another thing that you can do is start bringing your environmental planners into the planning process earlier and coordinate with them and help have them help you make decisions on environmental resources early. So this could be a desktop screening. It could be, you know, just getting their local knowledge, uh, helping to do a little bit of desktop research about certain things that you might encounter and putting together, you know, a risk and mitigation strategy in your planning process. Yeah. And, you know, um, a good example of that where we've done that before as part of an MTP Metropolitan Transportation Plan, we brought in environmental planners um, as part of another team. We brought them in to kind of flag projects that we thought might need, might have more environmental obstacles and not to mean that they wouldn't happen, but to allow them more time and money to address those environmental obstacles when it came to fiscally constraining our plan. So we flagged those projects based off of a desktop scan of resources, environmental resources, and dug into those a little deeper. And then we added additional time and money for the project cost estimate for that and just kept that in mind when we were programming the project. So I think that that yeah. takes it to a whole nother level and helps with minimizing the amount of project delays or amendments because things cost more, it costs more than you anticipated. And now all of a sudden you ran out of money and the project gets put on hold until you can find more money. If you know up front, it's going to cost more money and you can program it accordingly. It's a lot better. Yeah. Yep. That's something that is always a challenge. Mm -hmm. You get, you get so far in a project and you're like, oh, there's an endangered species out here. Uh, yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Now we have to do surveys. Whoopsies. <laughs> All right, moving on to our last one, emphasis area number eight, data in transportation planning. So FHWA and FTA are really encouraging that plans be data-driven, incorporate data sharing into the planning process. And as data is becoming more readily available, data sharing seems to be less of an issue than it once was. I remember I was, I was working on a plan, I think it was for GDOT, and I was requesting parcel data and the county wanted to charge me something like $1 for every parcel, like GIS data. That's insane. Like a GIS later, layer. And they were like, yeah, that'll be $1 for every parcel. I needed like 13,000 parcels. Man, that's a money-making scheme they got going on there. Right? <laughs> I was like, I don't think I can justify expensing $13,000. I don't think Kelly's going <laughs> to approve that expense report. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, needless to say, we did the project without that data. And had we had that data, it probably would have been a lot better. Instead, we had to go off of aerial imagery. This is really before like Google Earth was like readily available and try to like draw out the parcel lines based on like just aerial imagery. Oh, wow. Yeah, it sucked. Yeah. You just you just dated yourself, Kirsten. Yeah, I did. I'm finally like I'm there. You're there. Like, now I'm like, yeah, I remember when like Google Earth wasn't a thing and we had to like manually draw. <laughs> my day can I just cyber my day that that dates me even further back was, you know. Earlier in my career, when I did a lot of travel demand modeling, now we've got a bunch of other people at the firm that do that. But we would complain about, remember when you had to carry a box of cards to run the <laughs> models? And if you dropped them, they got out of order. You were screwed. 
Like, no. that's how bad. <laughs> no, I don't remember that, Kelly. Thank you for making me feel young again. <laughs> oh, God. All right. I'll let you continue right. with that. So, okay. So there actually are a lot of open source data platforms available. There's also proprietary ones that you can buy. There's data collected from other studies. So it just makes sense to ensure everyone is using consistent, reliable data and planning these days. There's no reason not to. So here, here's my key point for the day. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Share your data. <laughs> yeah. Although we should have the disclaimer that not all data, like if you had to buy proprietary data, do read your contracts because you may not be legally permitted to share that data. And you may have had to sign like a non-disclosure agreement. But before you sign any of that and purchase the data, ask the vendor if you can get permission, even if you may not know if you need to yet. We've had success in asking the vendor in advance, okay, can we write into the contract that we're allowed to share the data with other projects with the client working for the same client or other departments within the same agency? And in some cases, even other stakeholders within the same region, but outside the agency, like say a, a DOT, a state DOT purchases the data, but they get permission to be able to share it with the MPOs throughout the state. So a lot of times, if you think about that ahead of time, you can get that written in um, so that you don't get your wrist slapped later. Yep. Yep. All right. So what are some planning applications? Well, try to leverage data from previous studies. There's a previous study done. They probably have some GIS layers, as long as it's not ancient, like like Kelly. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, you know, I was telling my dad the other day that there is not a day that goes by that my children don't tell me that I'm old. And he was like, you should tell them that it really bothers you. I'm like, it doesn't bother me. I don't care. Right. <laughs> He's like, well, it bothers me. I was like, that's because you're old. <laughs> so then I did the same thing to him. You really are old. Yeah, you, you actually really classify as being old. old. <laughs> but yeah, so there's previous studies. There's probably data behind it. This could be plans from locals, regions, regional agencies and states. If the client or the agency doesn't have it, if they had a consultant do it, they probably do try to get in contact with them. And again, don't be a jerk. Mm -hmm. Share your data if you can. And, you know, there's also opportunities to partner with other agencies on data sharing opportunities. You can create you know, memorandums of understanding or some some sort of like policy that allows you to share data in between um, and try to leverage open data sources. And you can do this and develop dashboards, monitor trends and performance that's open to agencies or even the public. So data, data, data. Yeah. And I would say, you know, it's really a win win because if you share, say, you know, you purchase data. And you're like, well, I purchased it and why would I want to share it for free or whatever? Well, you share it for free. The, the people that get it, they get free data. But then their plan or study that they're doing is using the same data. So chances are their results are going to jive with yours, which is going to provide more credibility and support for what you're doing as well. So if you have a bunch of studies and plans in the region and they conflict with one another because they're using different data sources, that doesn't help you at all. So, right. you know, it's a win-win. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we got through all of them. Kelly, Man. you have a favorite emphasis area? Oh, geez. You know, um, well, favorite, I would say, it, it's hard to pick, but I would say favorite is you know, the stuff related to climate change and resiliency and tying that in with electric vehicles and um, just resiliency planning. But but I feel like the ones that were most needed were that were getting overlooked historically were the, um, you know, FLMA and the straw net coordination with the DOD. I think those two were ones that really needed to be added just because they were being overlooked. And hopefully, you know, others were practicing good planning practice and doing all the 
to get into it, you know. Yeah. But all of it's yeah. needed, you know. I would agree. I mean, I'm I'm obviously like because I think you and I are on the same page yeah. about technology yeah. and like how that's going to transform the future and electric yeah. vehicles and connected vehicles and all of that. Yeah. I think that's the one that I'm I'm most excited yeah. is, you know, solutions to tackle, you know, resilience and Yeah. The climate change. What do they call it? Do they refer to it as a crisis? I think they did. They did. The climate crisis. Yeah. The climate crisis. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that kind of wraps it up. You know, I just we're super excited about this season. Yeah. We certainly want to remind all of our listeners, plural, <laughs> to, you know, find us on online, leave us comments. If there's a topic that you're really interested in hearing about, uh, please let us know because we need to start thinking about episode topics for season four. Yeah. We're already thinking about 2024. Yeah. And, you know, let us know what topics excite you the most or if there's an emphasis area that excites you. Um, you can find us on social media and the web. Yeah. So with that, we're going to close it out. We thank you for tuning in. Uh, just a reminder, if you're a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. You can find all podcasts eligible for AICP CM credits on the American Planning Association website at planning.org. All you have to do is look up the providers and search for Modern Mobility Partners, and it'll bring up all of our podcast episodes. If you want to learn more about how we at Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. When you review our podcast, by the way, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you listen to your podcast, that actually gets us more visibility on the podcast app. So that's how you can thank us for all this free information and free ASAP credits is review us and hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> better be good. It better be good. Otherwise, just don't <laughs> even bother, really. Right. Yeah, if it's not five no star. No negative comments needed. No negative comments. Only if it's five star are you allowed to review. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we are over and out. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.